Romans chapter 8, we left off there in verse 30. We'll pick up in verse 31, and Lord willing, we're going to endeavor to finish up this 8th chapter together in our Bible study. Romans 8, verse 31, and if you'll stand with me out of respect for God's Word as we read our portion of Scripture together. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? And who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we humbly ask as we read and study and meditate upon this portion of your word, Lord, just the the reading of it alone, Lord, so rich in what it speaks And we just pray that by the grace of God and the power and ministry of your spirit that somehow, Lord, we can have every intent that was in your heart when you inspired these things speak to us in a deeply personal way in our life this morning where we're at that it might strengthen us and speak truth to us and assure us with confidence and security because of your great love towards us. So, Lord, do what only you can do by your Spirit. Prepare us individually, and we ask that your Spirit would minister to us in this time and teach us from the Word of God. And we pray these things expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, yesterday, of course, was the grand Valentine's Day, and I am certain that there are people this morning who are reeling uh, in perhaps distress or pain or sadness or loneliness, whether they had a significant uh, other who they're supposedly in love with who just really bottomed out and failed, or... If they're just deeply lonely because they don't have a significant other and wish they did and had someone who did something for them, and that's, of course, probably just as painful and difficult at times and, of course, then leads to all types of other problems. Well, this morning, look, we're looking at a passage uh, that is the antidote to every Valentine heartache and heart problem because this talks to us so clearly about the incredible love of God. You know, John says in his epistle, this aged apostle, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father 
has given unto us that we should be called children of God. In other words, if there's something worthy to behold, he says, you know, take a little time and just behold the love of God. Well, in this passage, that's really what we're doing. We're, we're beholding the love of God and the confidence and security that we should experience because of God's great love for us, seen to us in Jesus in what he's done for us. And every person, I think, to some extent in this world struggles with human insecurity. You know, when, when we interact with one another, I think there are so many things, even the little quirks about our personalities and times we say certain things or behave in certain ways where much of that can really contrib- be contributed towards the fact of human insecurity. I think from the Garden of Eden, from the fall into sin, you look at Adam and it is just perpetuated that human beings are rather insecure. But there's something very secure that comes to the life of a person who understands and accepts and believes for themselves the incredible love that God has for them and can by faith embrace what the Bible says. And I think this text wants to help eliminate some of that insecurity maybe in our own lives. Now remember the first 30 verses that we studied in our prior weeks together Paul has spoken some really glorious truths about spiritual life. I mean, he began with saying there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He talked about how the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death and how the spirit of God is with us and indwelling us and helping us in everything that we need, whether it's our prayer life or overcoming sin, that he's bearing witness to our spirit that we are children of God, that we have an inheritance in Christ, that though we have present sufferings, that these sufferings can't even be compared to the glory that's going to one day be revealed. And then last time Paul went on to speak about how we can know as children of God, as Christians, that all things work together for the good, for us. Ultimately, that God is working and orchestrating everything that we experience in this life to somehow ultimately result in our good. And he's just described these incredible mountaintop peaks of truths and glorious things of the spiritual life. And that is why, as you come to verse 31, I think Paul then says there, if you look with me, he says, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, he's saying, what can we honestly say in response to these truths, to these promises, to these realities? The implication here is that Paul is, for a moment anyway, sort of being left feeling speechless in the moment. And when you silence a preacher, that's a pretty profound thing. You notice it doesn't take Paul long to get back in gear then and he starts talking again. But, but this is the idea here, that as Paul's contemplating everything the Spirit of God has just brought through him to pen and to record, all these incredible truths, he's, he's just saying, what can you say to that? What is there left to actually be said in response to that? Perhaps before you've maybe had something really wonderful done for you in your life, or maybe you had somebody share some a really good news that somehow was going to really benefit you greatly and you as a result have kind of come to that place where you have that overwhelmed moment where you're just kind of thinking or maybe you say, I, I, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say to that. Well, I mean, it's so wonderful. I just, I can't find the word. Well, that's the idea here. 
This is the idea spiritually. As we contemplate these things, Paul was brought to that place. We should really be brought to that place where we, in essence, agree with Paul and say, well, what can we possibly say to these things? See, he's incredibly confident and secure as a child of God, and therefore he begins then to reflect upon that even more in depth going forward, next saying in verse 31, and if God is for us, he says, who can be against us? The idea here is since God is both with us in his presence, and more than that, as we'll see, as he's also supportively standing together with us and standing behind us, the implication here is the opposition that comes against us is never going to succeed ultimately. Now understand, granted there will indeed be in your life, even as a Christian, the existence of opposition, if you haven't noticed that yet. And it comes in many different forms. Paul doesn't disregard the reality, he says here, that there are those who are against us. Because there are those who are against us. Certainly the devil is against us. And he will attack us and oppose us and seek to resist and destroy all that is good and godly and wonderful for our lives. Peter, speaking of the devil in 1 Peter 5, said that he is our adversary and he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The devil is against us. He wants to destroy us and oppose us. Jesus told Peter that the devil was trying to sift him like wheat. And so the devil is against us. He will work against us in opposition to us. If that weren't enough, the world stands against us simply because you're a Christian and a child of God. The Bible makes it very clear that there's a system of this fallen world. First John speaks of it and how there is an anti-Christ spirit that is just among the world system. Ultimately, that will culminate in the personage of the Antichrist himself that the Bible speaks of in the last days. But even now, the spirit of Antichrist, a spirit that if you haven't noticed is very anti-Christian, it pervades the culture. It seems to be what influences our fallen world system and brings hatred and animosity towards Christ and towards Christianity and towards those who are Christ's followers. Jesus in uh, John chapter 15 spoke of how the world hated him and therefore the world will hate you also just because you're a follower of Jesus, just because perhaps you believe and subscribe to the things of Christ and Christianity and the devil and the world, if you didn't realize yet, use people as their instruments of their hatred and of their animosity and putting against us that resistance that we feel. If it weren't for the devil in the world, I find also that my own flesh is against me. Uh, many a times, my biggest challenge isn't just, well, what the devil's trying to do against me or how the world's coming against me, but many a times I find I'm my own worst enemy. That there's a Judas that lives within me. Isn't that what Romans chapter 7 was all about? <laughs> Romans chapter 7 was all about how many times we're against ourselves. The things that we want to do, we don't do. And the things that we don't want to do, they're the things that we keep doing. So we have things that are against us, no question. The existence and the efforts will be against us. But the point the Bible's making here is all those efforts against us, they'll amount to very little. The reason why is because who's with us and who is for us, though those things are against us. That's why Paul is saying here, if God is for us, 
then who can be against us? The idea being this, who can successfully be against us? Yes, the devil's against us. Yes, the world's against us. Yes, people will be against us. Yes, many times it seems we're against our own selves for what's good and right. But he says none of those things can successfully succeed against us because of the very one who is with us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And take note, Paul's not just talking about God being with us. Notice the word there, God being for us. Now, granted, God is with us, right? The Bible teaches us that. The prior portion of Romans chapter 8 dealt a great deal with the reality of God being with us. That he actually, by his spirit, indwells us and lives inside the child of God. The day you accepted Jesus, the Bible teaches that God actually took up residence inside of your life. A transition happened where God was with us, drawing us to himself, revealing himself to us, causing us to accept Jesus. And the day you accept Jesus Christ, the miracle of miracles is God actually, by his spirit, takes up residence inside of your life and by his spirit dwells within you so that you don't have to try and be a Christian. God lives within you to help you live for Christ by coming within you by his spirit. So the awesome, incredible presence of God is with us, and that's pretty impressive. But here, more than that, the Bible takes it one step further to say, look, not only is God's presence with you, Christian, but he says God's actually for you. I had times in my life where I've had people who were with me, their presence was with me, but they certainly weren't for me. And, and, and the Bible is trying to say, look, God's not just with you. He's actually for you. He's behind you. He's standing in support of you. He is favorably supporting us fully as a child of God. And the term, if there, don't misinterpret it. The condition in the language implies, really, it might be better translated, since God is for us or because God is for us. Let me illustrate. Many times when I'm on the way home uh, from somewhere, uh, my wife might shoot me a text or let's say I were to say to her, uh, I'm going to stop by Wawa on the way home. And and she may say something in reply to that. Well, if you're going to stop by Wawa, can you get a loaf of bread? The idea there isn't, I I wonder if you really are going to stop by Wawa. The idea is, if you're going to stop by, since you're going to stop by. Now, we use the term, if you're going to stop by the store, while you're there, grab this as well. But that's the idea here. It's not so much if in the sense of it may or may not be true. It's if in the idea of since, because you're going to stop by, because you're going to do that, since you are, then therefore would you do this? And this is the implication here in our text. It's since or because God is for us, he says, who then really can be against us? And isn't it true? There's something very wonderful. Maybe if you're doing something in life, you're endeavoring to venture out, or maybe you're facing resistance for something in your life and there's something really encouraging if you have the sense of yeah this is a hard time and things like things are against me but it's really encouraging to know that I have this friend who's who's standing for me and standing beside me or my I know you know my spouse is is standing in support of me or I know my parents are for me they're supporting me in this step or this pursuit that I'm that's very encouraging Especially if you have someone that is for you or supporting you that maybe is an influential person. Maybe to have a powerful, influential person standing for you and in support of you. Uh, Imagine if you had the entire country standing behind you. 
with all its military might and resources. Wow, you got the entire country behind you, man. That would feel pretty good, wouldn't it? Well, listen this morning. You have God standing for you. You have God backing you and behind you and supporting you. And that should be an incredible encouragement. So maybe you will, as I do, battle your own human failures. And you're going to deal with the self-criticism and being against yourself. But listen, God is greater. God is greater. The Bible says in 1 John 3.20, even if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Even if the devil and all the demons of hell come against you, listen, we're all in that together, but we're not alone because God is for us and God is behind us. 1 John 3 eight says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The devil is not God's equal. Keep in mind, too many times people have this perception like the devil is God's arch enemy, like who's Batman's arch enemy? I was going to say Robin. That's his partner, right? That's who's the Joker. Okay, there you go. The devil's not God's art. God created the devil. The devil's a created being. We have to understand that reality. The devil is not God's arch enemy with equal power and equal capability. No, he's he's an angel that God created and gave existence to before he rebelled. Our father is much stronger. The Bible says, look, the whole world may be against you and the devil's influences of the whole world may be against you. But he says, remember 1 John 4, 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So it's this reality that the Bible wants us to realize that God is for us because perhaps today, maybe you're feeling a little bit somewhat alone. Maybe you're feeling alone in standing for what's right. And maybe you're taking a stand for what is righteous and you're trying to follow Jesus Christ. And there are not many, perhaps maybe there aren't any. Maybe everyone and everything is standing against you. And that's a difficult place to be. Well, God wants you to know that he is standing for you that he is with you, that he is behind you, and despite what your thoughts or feelings may be saying to you within, God is not against you. He has your best interest in mind. We would say in our terminology, he's got your back, right? In days maybe before we were saved and we were doing things, especially guys we shouldn't, and, and, and your buddy would say, to look, man, I got your back, dude. We know that I got your back, man. All right, well, if you, got, if, you got, if you got my back, then all right, I'm going for it. God has your back. He's supporting you. He's standing behind you as you pursue what is right and righteous, and he wants to help and assist you in whatever you're facing and whatever you're dealing with. Believe what the Bible says. Don't let your feelings or what you see with your eyes or others are saying, believe what the Bible says. And what's one of the best ways you can be sure that God is for you? Well, that's what verse 32 goes on to tell us. Here's how we can be sure of that. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So considering what? The demonstration of what the father gave already in his son, Jesus Christ, and that generosity to start with, Paul says that's the very thing that assured us that he'll continually give to us everything else that we need. He says, remember, hearken back, he says, remember that God did not spare his own son. The idea of spare there is God didn't withhold his own son from us. 
He didn't uh, hold back the very best thing that he had, his only begotten son. The most precious and valuable thing is what he actually offered to us. And keep in mind, he's God. He could have reserved whatever he wanted. He could have took the stance, well, listen, I mean, yeah, I want to help you. Right? I want to help humanity. But, I mean, there's only foes so far I'm willing to go with that. I mean, we're like that as human beings. Yeah, I'm willing to help, but then there's always a limitation or restriction maybe with how far we're willing to go. I mean, I'll help you to this point, but I'm, I'm willing to do this or give that, but I got to draw a line somewhere, buddy. I got to draw a line somewhere. God didn't draw a line. God didn't hold back or spare or keep from us anything. In fact, he gave us the absolute best on the front side. It says here that he delivered Jesus up for us. He supplied his own son as an offering and a gift that he might die on the cross for our sins. He turned over Jesus to be the substitute to take the punishment for our sin. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. The point the Bible's making here is that God demonstrated his love and favor towards us by giving us the absolute best he had up front. The very first thing he gave us was the absolute best he had. So the reasoning here flows in this way. If that's true then everything else that follows afterwards is going to be true. So he's saying, if he didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up, Paul says, how shall he not then with him freely give us all things? If the first is true, the second is all the more reliable. If God freely gave the best up front, he's not going to hold back anything of lesser value. If he gave us the greatest thing on the front side so graciously, certainly he's not going to hesitate to give believers the smaller things, the lesser things that we all need for life and spirituality. Again, if I can try and illustrate it faintly, let's say, for example, you're about to make a big decision like purchasing a home. And as you're looking at this house, uh, the person who is maybe the homeowner says to you, look, we really want you to take this house. And in fact, if you're willing to take the house, we'll even throw in uh, the toaster and the coffee pot. And, and so you work through things a little bit. And then that person, let's say they're very well off and they're very generous. And for some reason, they just really want you to have the house. So they slash the price, five grand, $500,000 house. Tell the realtor, give it to them for five grand. That's a deal I can't pass up. Absolutely. Okay, so you make the agreement. This incredible house. Half a million dollars for five grand, so you decide to take the house. And as you're going through the process, you then ask your realtor, you think they'll really throw in the coffee pot and the toaster? You think they'll really do that? And your realtor says to you in that moment, look at the house they just gave you. Do you really think they're not going to give you the toaster? Look at the house they gave you. Do you really think they won't leave the coffee pot too? And this is the idea here spiritually with God. God gave us Jesus. God gave the best on the front side to give us the sense of, look, God's saying, do you think I won't give you the coffee pot? You think I won't take care of your toaster that broke? Do you think I won't you know, throw in the Ginzu knife set? Of course I will. I gave you my son. I gave you the best up front. How would I not give you lesser things if I gave you the best thing? And this should be a text that inspires confidence that God will give us whatever else we need 
for life, for godliness. God is not reluctant to give or do what you need this morning. In fact, his heart's not reluctant towards you whatsoever. The point the Bible wants to assure us of is he is our greatest supporter and there is no reluctance. Please hear me. There is no reluctance in God's attitude as it comes to helping you. There's no reluctance in God's attitude as it comes to assisting you, to blessing you, to give you what you need. His first act of giving, Paul is saying, should be the thing that inspires us to believe, wow, if God would do that, certainly he'll freely give this other thing that I need or certainly he'll do the other things that are necessary to help me for life and godliness. And this truth should encourage you to look to God expectantly confidently like a child saying wow look what my dad already of course he's going to throw in the toaster of course i can trust him for that because i see what he's already done on the front side of things paul goes on to say verse 33 and who shall bring a charge against god's elect he says it's god who justifies who is he who condemns paul says it's christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God. So the picture in verse 33 and 34 Paul uses is sort of like a courtroom setting. He says, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect, those who are his children? We talked about election and predestination a little bit last week. It's a reference to the children of God. He's saying, who's going to bring a charge? The idea there is to make a formal accusation uh, regarding one's guilt, to press charges, to expose guilt, to charge someone with the evidence of their guilt. Now, again, Satan does that, right? And he does a very good job at that, legitimately and accurately, both in the heavens, the Bible says, and I found he does a very well uh, performance in that area with the mouths of other human beings as well that remind us and expose our guilt and point out to us our guilt when we do fail. But the Bible is trying to assure us here that Satan's accusations about your guilt and my sins and your failures, they may be accurate, they may be legitimate, but they're always going to get thrown out of court. Why? Because God's the judge. Our Father in heaven is the judge presiding over affairs and our Father has already chosen us to be his children eternally and he's already justified us judicially by our faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and as believers, we're his elect and he says, look, at the end of the day, it's God who justifies. It's, and, and God has already justified us, Romans 5 taught us, by our faith in Jesus Christ. He's already declared us innocent and free from the charges. Our case has already been decided by our faith in Christ and the Father's response to that. And, and, and here's what Paul's saying. There's no retrials. There's no retrials in heaven's court. If God's already justified you by your faith and said you are righteous, you're coming to heaven, you're my son, you're my daughter, it doesn't matter what the devil reminds God of or how he accuses, and he does. Revelation 12 says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren, and he accuses us before God night and day. So in essence, he's saying, Father, do you see the way he just, you see the way he just spoke to his wife there? I mean, that was harsh. That's sin according to what the Bible says. And the father turns to his son and says, son, this is true. We're obviously aware of that. And the son says, covered. Paid for that, father. He turns right around to the devil and he says, case dismissed. Get out of here. He's free. He's already justified. 
Yes, your charges are accurate, but I've already determined that he is free, that he's innocent of his guilt because of what my son has done. And our advocate, Jesus Christ, is there to stand on our behalf. Well, the devil typically, you know, he, he, how the devil, wait, wait, I object. I object. Don't, I mean, well, look what he did before he got saved. Certainly that. I mean, I know he's a Christian now, but, but that one vile thing he did before, certainly that deserves a little punishment. Or perhaps he may say of some of us, wait a minute, aren't you aware of even after he became a Christian? Look what she went back and did even after she was a Christian. Look what he went and did even after they claimed to be a follower of Christ. Certainly that requires some punishment. And this is the idea here. Paul asks in our verses, who is he condemns? Because the devil wants to do that too. The word condemn there doesn't mean to just prove guilt but it speaks of punishment that's deserved for guilt condemnation and again satan brings condemnation we wrestle with it in our minds in our feelings others see our sins and failures they condemn us verbally for what we do especially unsaved people they love to criticize christians more than anybody right because it makes them feel better if i can criticize you and your hypocritical christianity then i feel better about holding out from becoming a christian and I don't feel as rotten about all the mistakes and failures I make because I can just belittle you and make you look bad. And it pads their own conscience. And so the devil wants to punish us and, and people want to punish us. And truth be told, many people do punish us. They punish us verbally by saying things to us or they, they punish us personally by the way they treat us because of some mistake we made in our past or some failure maybe that's happened presently. And truth be told, we're often very prone to condemn and punish ourselves. We do a great job at it, beating ourselves up in our feelings of guilt and shame. Yet hear what the Bible says. There is only one person who has the righteous, just reason to be able to condemn any person spiritually, and that is Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 34. Who is he condemns? And then he reminds us, wait a minute, I'll tell you what it is. He says it's Christ. He's the only one that has the right to contemn, but he says it's Christ, remember, who already died for our sins. Who died so that the punishment could be upon him rather than upon us. He absorbed the punishment that we do deserve so that we could be freed from it. And furthermore, he says Jesus also then rose from the dead. He's risen. He overcame the power of sin to control our lives. And he says if that were not enough, he's even, verse 34, at the right hand of God. And what's he doing? He's making intercession for us. So the one person who has the right to condemn us is the one who died to take our punishment from us. It's the one who rose again so that sin wouldn't have control over our lives. And it's the one person as well who's now alive, seated at the right hand of the Father's throne and is there making intercession for us on our behalf. The function of the present day ministry of Jesus Christ is an intercessory ministry. So as we struggle with suffering or struggle with temptations to sin, the Bible says Jesus is there making intercession for you through those struggles. And as we fail and stumble and condemn ourselves and others condemn us, he says Jesus is right there making intercession for you. 1 John 2.10 says, or 2.1, excuse me, says that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. The original language is literally the term we get today, attorney. Picture Jesus like that. He's your defense attorney in heaven. That's a pretty good, assured, tight case there. 
that Jesus Christ is interceding at the right hand of God on your behalf. Now, often when we struggle with times of suffering, as Romans 8 has talked about, or we're struggling with sin, as a result, people start to feel kind of isolated, and they feel alone. And they feel kind of separated or abandoned, perhaps maybe even like the Lord himself in the midst of our suffering. We feel like sometimes the Lord's abandoned us. Or we feel like that in some way, perhaps the Lord has departed from us. Or worst of all, sometimes we feel like that because of certain things, we've driven the Lord away from us. Well, this is what the rest of the text addresses. The Holy Spirit wants to impart confidence and security that we could never separate the Lord from us because of his devotion to us. Look at verse 35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? In other words, is it really possible to drive away the Lord from us, to separate his love from us. That word separate that's used there, the term literally means to depart from. It's a word that was used merely to describe how a husband may depart from their wife or a wife may depart from her husband in separation or divorce. The root term means to put a space between, to create a distance or a gulf between two parties. So this is the idea here. Paul's asking, is there anyone that can put a gulf between God's love and you? Is there anyone that can drive a wedge or a distance somehow between you and the love and devotion that Jesus has towards you? Is, is that actually possible? Could anything take away or drive Jesus from loving you? Now the difficulty is this. Many of us here this morning have already experienced in some form in our life the departure of someone else's love for us. And because of that, that reality of confronting us of maybe another person who once loved us and now their love has departed from us. Their love has abandoned us. That love has been separated from us for various different reasons. We experience that hurt and letdown of being separated from the love of another person that we once enjoyed and experienced. Maybe it was your mother or father who you had a great relationship with and they loved you tremendously. And, and when they died, you were separated from that love that you once experienced. Maybe you're here this morning and you had an incredible love relationship and your spouse has died. And so now you've been separated from that love. And that's painful and that's difficult. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a, a spouse who's departed from you and their love through separation or divorce or infidelity. And that's a painful experience when you've been separated from that love and that love has abandoned you. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a child who experienced divorce or separation as a result of what your parents' decisions were. And so you experience being separated from the love of a parent who abandon the home or abandon the marriage. That happens in friendships. It happens just geographically as we move. Many different ways in our lives we can be experiencing the love of someone and then something happens, right or wrong, and then that love is taken away from us. It departs from us. And that leaves painful scars and heartache and I think it then leaves uncertainty in the human soul and then we struggle trusting in the confidence of someone else's love. And the Bible is trying to say to us here, listen, don't take human love and your human experiences and translate that over to Jesus. Because Jesus' love is an unfailing love. 
it's an undying love because he never dies. It's a love that's unconditional, that has no limitations. It's a love that will never fail. And Jesus himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Others may, others will, but Jesus won't. And other people may be able to separate us from other things. Don't get me wrong. People may be able to separate you from your job. People may be able to separate you from lots of other things, but no one can separate you from the love of Jesus. People can take from you and rob from you and drive from you and cause separation in your life from every other thing that you possess, but no one and nothing, the Bible is saying, can separate you from the love that Jesus has for you. That is something that is assured to every person. The Bible gives us that certainty and even nothing that you and I do ourselves can drive away the love that Jesus has for you because nothing will ever cause his love to cease for us. Paul says, what could separate us? And then it's almost as if he says, well, if people can't, well, what about problems we face? Or what about the things that we go through? That's what he's referring to here in verse 35, where he kind of just rambles off a list. He says, how about tribulation? That word means external pressures when we're squeezed circumstantially. Life's adversities, hardships, they put crushing pressure on us, don't they? When you go through a hard time and the, the heavy weight of some difficulty or a tragedy or some storm and like crushing pressure, it's pushing down upon you. And, and, and Paul is saying to us here, look, Christians, we're not immune from pain and problems and sickness and struggles. That's a really bad idea to have. Before you were saved, you had problems. Do you think just because you're saved, you're not going to have problems now? We're not immune from pain and problems. And so listen, when we experience adversity, it's hard. But it doesn't mean Jesus has ceased to love you. It doesn't mean Jesus has ceased to love you. Tribulation is not going to separate you from the love of Jesus for you. He says, how about distress? That's a term that speaks of being confined. It speaks of being squeezed internally. So yes, we have outward pressures on our life. But then when we experience hard times, what happens? Then we feel strangled within. There's the mental anguish that human beings go through or the emotional stress where maybe you're going through a hard time and what you feel like is, if we were to ask you, I feel like I'm suffocating within. I feel like this is just strangling me from the inside out and it's just sucking the life out of me and squeezing me. And maybe this morning you feel trapped in something. Maybe you feel trapped in the job that you're in. Maybe you feel trapped in some financial crunch or some hardship or some hard relationship. Do you think just because you feel trapped that Jesus at some point is going to move on without you and say, look, that's just a little too complicated for me. Or your life's become just a little too high maintenance. There's a little too much pressure. I don't know if I want to commit to all that. Of course not. Paul goes on to say, how about persecution, mistreatment, people rejecting you? He says, how about famine or nakedness? Those are words that speak of material lack or suffering limitation, scarcity of food or not enough clothing or covering. Again, question, is Jesus going to stop loving you just because your pay scale changes? Just because you lose a job, does that mean Jesus doesn't love you anymore? Just because you have less than someone else, does that mean Jesus loves you less than the person who has two more wardrobes than you do? The Bible says, of course not. 
None of those things are things that would ever separate us from the incredible love that Jesus has. Paul says, well, how about peril or sword? The word peril means dangers or threatening things. The sword is a reference to death and destructive forces. So the Bible's saying, can any danger or threatening circumstance that you go through in life somehow maybe scare off the love of Jesus? As if somehow Jesus is going to be intimidated by something. That's a little intimidating there. That's pretty threatening. Maybe other ones would stand with you, but uh, that's a little too much potential risk in that situation. I don't know if I want to stick with you on that. That could be pretty risky. Of course not. You know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to be loyal. And when everybody else abandons you, he will be the one person who will stand with you back to back and will help you and be a friend that sticks closer than a brother and will keep loving you and be loyal to you when no one else is loyal to you and will not separate or walk away from you. Paul says, verse 36, as it is written, he says, often we feel like for your sake, Lord, we're killed all day long and we're like accounted like sheep being prepared for the slaughter and sometimes life can feel like that even as a follower of Jesus notice that Paul here pictures as the Bible does in many places the Christian life as being like sheep and what are sheep? they're docile they're vulnerable and did you ever take notice before you ever notice there's no NFL team that takes the sheep as their mascot right? the New England lambs you know Nobody does that, right? Because sheep indicates something. And because of that, my question is this. Why as Christians sometimes do I see and perceive where there's almost this aggressive attitude with Christianity? As if we need to self-preserve or fight for our rights. or And again, listen, what's up with the Lambo thing here? You know, we're Lambos. You know, we're going to take the world. I listen to people pray sometimes, and they pray like Lambo. Like, 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 like they're rambling when they're praying. What, what, are, we, what are you doing here? We're, we're lambs. We're sheep. We're sheep. What is up with this aggressive, you know, you know kind of dominating type attitude? The, the Bible refers to us as sheep. Do you know how we overcome? Because we have a victor and a strong shepherd. We're sheep. We overcome by faith and trusting in the conquering power of our king. Not by thinking we're kings or acting like somehow we're aggressively going to storm the gates and take things. It's a very backward perception. He says, Lord, it seems like that we many times, we're under attack constantly. Yet, notice verse 37, yet in all these things. Yes, we're attacked. Yes, we go. But he says, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, even though we deal with crushing circumstances, mistreatment, pain, problems, trials. But he says, but in these things, in the midst of them, we can conquer. And the word conquer is someone who overcomes in victory through their battles. And the Bible uses the term here, hypernikeo. The idea is a, a super conqueror. As Christians, we can not just conquer what we face, but we can have a super conquest, again, not because we aggressively go take it for ourselves, but we through faith inherit the victory that comes through the love and the power and the help of Jesus Christ. That we realize where our victory comes from. And oftentimes in our world, look around as people deal with hardships and pain and problems. This is a hard world. 
Many times when people go through things and they suffer, what happens? They're conquered by their circumstances. They're overwhelmed by their circumstances. And many people, therefore, then live stuck and imprisoned like a victim. And they become conquered by their circumstances and they live as a victim of their circumstances. Yet the Bible says the person of Christ that was with Christ, they become a victor in their circumstances. In their circumstances, they become a conqueror. And notice how, here's how, he says, through him who loves us. The way that we conquer as Christians is through the awareness of Jesus' presence with us and the awareness of Jesus' love for us. That's what emboldens us to keep going and to be able to conquer in the midst of our circumstances and knowing that his power is there to help us and to assist us. Look how Paul concludes this chapter. He says, For I am persuaded. The idea is convinced, absolutely certain of one thing, Paul says, that neither death nor life, whatever end of the spectrum you go, nor angels or principalities or powers, the devil, every demonic force that's in an existence and operation, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, no matter what extent you go to, nor, he says, let me just cover it all, any other created thing. Again, he repeats what he said earlier, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul declares this was one thing, he says, that I am firmly confident about. He says there's one thing in my life, though there's a lot of uncertainty that exists, that I am so persuaded about, that I am so certain and confident about, and that is that nothing, nothing, no one, anything we experience is able in all of creation and beyond creation to separate us from the love that God has for us, that we see and experience in Christ Jesus our Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, would you agree in this world, there's a whole lot that we can't be certain about. There's a whole lot that we can't be certain about. And we live in a world of uncertainty and the Bible wants to indicate that there is absolutely one assurance that you can hold on to and rely on and lean on and live your life with and that is the fact that God loves you. God loves you. That's sufficient. That's enough. That sustains us, the Bible is trying to tell us. Whether it's things present or things to come. Again, maybe you're facing some really hard times presently right now. Maybe presently you are in the midst of the fire. Or maybe it's things to come and you're thinking on top of what I'm in now, I don't know what's around the corner. I don't know what's going to happen when I turn the corner. God's saying to you, it does not matter even what happens around the corner because I'll still love you through it. And my love will be there for you. And if everything else and everyone else turns and walks away, he says, I will reliably keep loving you and helping you and standing with you and I'll be for you and I'll stand by your side. And I'll tell you, there is incredible security to be found in that. There's incredible confidence to hold on to the fact that that love of God in Christ Jesus is ever-present and it will never fail and it will never falter. Amen?